It's great to have you with us from wherever you're tuning in from. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app. We hope this message inspires and helps you to take your next steps in your journey. Hey, good morning, good morning, good morning. Great to see you here today. This morning, we are continuing a series we launched last week called The World Spins Madly on Volume 2, which is a continuation, in a sense, from a series we taught just prior to that, The World Spins Madly on Volume 1. Now, Volume 1, we looked at lessons from a guy named Elijah. He was a prophet or a spokesperson for God and God used him to do incredible miracles. So there's a ton of stuff that we unpacked during that series. Towards the end of Elijah's life, God told him to go and find a successor. And in fact, God actually handpicked the successor just to keep it interesting, a guy named Elisha. You, you think... Couldn't just found someone named John. Anyway, so now we're dealing with Elijah going to find his successor, Elisha, and indicate that he's going to essentially pass the baton onto Elisha. And to Elisha's credit, he obeyed immediately, even though he didn't know all of the details. Now, You can go to our podcast, catch up last week, find out what that's all about. Big idea was you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. So there's that. All right, today we're going to pick things up where Elijah has now left the building and Elisha has firmly taken up that baton and he started to run with it. Miracles have started to happen in Elisha's life. I don't have time to go into all of them. I need to skip over where God parted the waters of the river twice, which he'd done previously in history. But, you know, just to prove it wasn't a trick, it wasn't a fluke. He did it again twice. No time to talk about that. I also need to skip over where the leaders of Jericho came and found Elisha and said to him, listen, our waters are poisoned. So nobody can drink from them and we can't actually grow crops because the waters are poison and asked Elisha if he could actually heal the waters. And Elisha did actually heal the waters. Little fun fact, if I was to preach about that miracle, which I don't have time to do, I would talk about the importance of you and me always being open to more healing. And often healing is talked about in the context of you. You know, heal your thing for your benefit. But this idea that Elisha, God used him to actually heal the waters of Jericho is that the waters in our lives, the waters of our soul, the waters where life is is lived inside out, isn't just about us. It's about ensuring that we are being used by God to bring life into the people around us, that we bring life into our marriage, that we bring life into the next generation. The next generation don't have to wade through the poison that maybe you got exposed to because you took the time to get healed so the next generation doesn't have to live under that. I'm all for resilience, right? It's a very, very vital and sadly declining character quality, but not coping. Because coping is too often confused with settling. 
And the problem with you living with a poisoned soul is it actually not only negatively affects the people around you, it doesn't also allow God to use you to give life to the people around you. But I don't have time to preach about that this morning. So then, now this one's bonkers. The next miracle, right? Listen carefully, listen to me. This is literally, you can check me later for yourself in the Bible. This is literally the next miracle. Elisha just healed the waters of Jericho. He's walking along. Some kids got up in his business and started criticizing him for being follicularly challenged. Literally saying to him, literally, go away, Baldy, go away, Baldy. Well, Elisha didn't seem to take that well. Elisha cursed these kids in real time. And having done that, two bears came out of the forest, mauled the kids and killed 42 of them. Hello. Now there's a couple of things I need to say about that. First, parents, relax. We're not teaching that in Elevate Kids this morning. All right. That's not today's miracle story. Not today. Never say never, but it's not today. And it's like, I read it and I'm thinking, what's that all about? But look, can we just have an honest moment here? Really? Because we're Bible people, right? Right? We believe in miracles, right? Don't tell me there wasn't or will not be in your future a time where you're sitting in a meeting and one of your colleagues is being a total moron and you're thinking to yourself, if only two bears could come out of the break room right now and deal with that person. Because here's what happened. The bears mauled these 42 kids. You know what Elisha did next? He just moved on. (laughs) What an incredible superpower to have selective access to. I don't have time to preach about that this morning, but uh, you know, do with it what you will. If you've got your smartphone camera and you're not too busy thinking about bears mauling people in your sphere, scan this flow code. It's gonna take you to 2 Kings chapter three and I'm gonna drop us into the message version. Now, while you're doing that, I'm gonna give us a very, very quick flyover of a slice of history. And this is only gonna work if you pay more attention than you've ever, ever paid before. All right, here's the deal. When we looked at the life of Elijah, Elijah entered the pages of history where the nation of Israel had spent the previous 200 years under the rule of 19 successive kings, each one more evil than the previous. The crescendo of evilness, not a word, was King Ahab, and he's the one that Elijah essentially mostly intervened, was used by God to get up in Ahab's business. Now, Ahab eventually died and handed over the kingdom to his son, Joram. Right, so Elisha now in his lifetime, the king of Israel is Joram. Now, Joram is less evil than his dad. So he's got that going for him, but he's still evil, just less evil. You know, it's relative, I'm sure. That's what we tell ourselves when we do dumb things. It's not as dumb as them. Anyway, still not worshipping the God of Israel, just like the previous 19 kings before him. Now, his dad, King Ahab, had actually levied a tax on a neighbouring king, uh, people called the, the Moabites, levied a tax on him that he was to pay 100,000 sheep and 100,000 ram. That's a lot. 
Well, when Ahab died and Joram took over, the king of Moab, he saw this as his opportunity to kind of just stop it. You know, no more, sorry, no more sheep, no more rams. And Joram's like, uh, no, it doesn't really work for me. I, I wanna keep this going. You're gonna still keep paying up. And so that sparked a war, right? Joram, in order to make this a convincing victory over Moab, he enlisted the, the kings and the troops of two other neighboring nations, nation of Judah, led by King Jehoshaphat, and the nation of Edom, not the cheese. The three of those nations joined together and formed an alliance and marched towards Moab with pretty much the idea that this is just gonna be a quick, convincing victory. Moab's gonna be destroyed and we're gonna take the sheep and the rams anyway. Well, after seven days of marching through the desert, things were taking longer than they had expected. These allied armies ran out of water for the troops and for the animals that they had as a part of their convoy. Desert, no water, no bueno. Literally, they'd underestimated things. Literally, things were now not going as expected and they needed a miracle. And this is something that happened in history, but this happens to us today, where we set out on a journey, sometimes fully obeying God, fully saying yes to Jesus, you lead, I'll follow. And yet things don't go as we expected. We thought they would take less time than they did or are doing. We thought there'd be less obstacles that we had to deal with. We thought there'd be less challenges that we'd have to overcome. And we get to the place where we need a miracle. You know, the relationship with your child, it's going so well until one day it's not. And you're like, I don't know what's causing this and I don't think I know what to do here. Maybe financial health going just fine and then you get the report and you're like, I did not see that coming and I don't know what to do next. And the only option for you is a miracle. And here's the rookie mistake. When things don't go as expected, we might have this narrative playing in our head. If only I had this, well, then I could do something. Like, like my back's against the wall. I feel paralyzed. I feel helpless. But if I had this, then I could do something. But because I don't, because I don't have that, then I'm not sure I can do anything. Well, you know, if only I had a better job, then I could do something. Well, here's the reality. Maybe. I mean, that may be true. But until that happens, it doesn't mean you can't do anything to better your circumstances. Well, if only I'd gone to university, then I could get that promotion. Well, maybe. But until then, doesn't mean you can't do anything. Well, maybe if we had more resources, then we could do what God's asking of us. Well, again, maybe have more, can do more. But in the meantime, it doesn't mean you can't do anything. So the king of Judah, a guy named Jehoshaphat, not evil, but not yet following the 
back to following the God of Israel, he was sort of at least wise enough to think maybe the God of Israel could do something, even though we're not following him. And he asked around, does anybody here know if there's a prophet of the God of Israel nearby? Anyone know anyone? And one of Joram's entourage says, yeah, I know a guy. His name's Elisha. He used to be Elijah's right-hand man. So they sent for Elisha. Elisha wasn't convinced that he, you know, should help them. Like, not my problem, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. But eventually relented. Here's something to understand. Your greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend on God. See, because of God, sorry, I've got my Captain Obvious hat on. I'm about to prove that to you. We, we never have no option. We never have no hope. We never have, there's nothing I can do here. Your greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend on God. These three kings with all their power, all their wealth, all their resources, all their influence, they go to a place in their lives collectively where they realize the only option we have here is to call out to the God of Israel, whom we don't worship. So Elisha listened to God, that's what prophets do, then spoke the instructions that he felt God give him <laughs> and said to them, tell your troops to grab some shovels and go out into the valley in the desert and dig some ditches. No bobcats, no excavators. This wasn't Fortescue. Shovels, shovels. Your troops are currently out of water. They're in the desert. Let's do some manual labour. That's the solution. Has <laughs> God ever asked you to do something that sounds like the almost opposite of what you thought he should do? And that's not the problem. The problem is if because you think it's the exact opposite of what you should do, you choose not to do it. That's the problem. Thankfully, they did. Grab said shovels. God's word, dig ditches all over this valley and here's what will happen. You won't hear the wind. You won't see the rain. But this valley is going to fill up with water and your army and your animals will drink to their full fill. Uh, don't be too impressed. This is easy for God to do. Oh, and just as a little bit of bonus, he'll also hand over Moab to you. Elijah had demonstrated to Joram's father that God controlled the rain. He could turn it off. He could turn it back on again. This was not a promise of rain. And I wonder if it's because he didn't want them to put their faith in the rain, but rather to put their faith in the God who calls himself Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. This wasn't a promise of rain. It was a better promise. It was a promise of provision. And too often when we talk about God being the provider, we just talk about money, which is fine. Hey, I don't mind having me some rich people's problems in my future. That's fine by me. Should I choose the BMW or the Mercedes? That's a silly metaphor. I don't even own a car. But um, 
maybe he'll do rain, but maybe not. But he's going to provide for you. So here's the thing, while you're waiting for God's provision, what can you be doing? And the answer is typically something. Because here's the principle, do what you can do and trust God to do what only He can do. See, only God can provide the water, but sometimes He wants you to first dig a ditch. Sometimes He wants you to actually demonstrate your faith and take a step of faith before He will demonstrate His faithfulness. It's His miracle, but He often wants us to participate. So want God to improve your health? Start walking 20 minutes a day. God, while I'm scrolling Netflix, please improve my cardiovascular fitness. Want God more involved in your finances? Take a next step with giving because He says He'll get involved in our financial world when we put our faith in Him by putting Him first by giving. If you want God to help you advance your career or your business, get a mentor or start some study, it's us. Grab a shovel. The sticking point sometimes is that we don't understand. I, what's, what's, I don't know, why would... It, But another sticking point is, why would I dig a ditch with a shovel when I actually need a full valley? I don't understand. I can't connect the dots here. But that's how the journey of faith works. Believe big and be willing to start small. Now, I know a lot of people And it's observation, not criticism, who if I was to say to them, one little kind of nudge, it'll be, you're not thinking big enough. You're not believing big enough. You're praying small prayers to a small God and He'll probably answer them. But what about you take a risk and start praying big prayers to a big God? I also know people who attempted to pray big prayers to a big God. And then God says, great, grab a shovel. And like, wait, what? And haven't connected the dots that the journey of faith believes big and starts small. Now, you can read what happened next for yourself. There's not another episode of Bears, but it's a good story. Then one day, the wife of a man from the Guild of Prophets called out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. Well, you know well, you you well know what a good man he was, devoted to God. And now the man whom he was in debt is on his way to collect by taking my two children as slaves. We don't know who the man, the husband was. We don't know who the wife is. There's some theories and they may or may not be true. It's not really the point that I'm wanting to double click on this morning. The point I wanna double click on is here's a woman who literally had her back against the wall. You owe some money, you might get your car repossessed. You owe a lot of money, you might get your house repossessed. In these days, you owe a lot of money, you're gonna get your kids repossessed. And you don't have any say in it. It was literally the law 
of the day. So this lady wasn't in a, what the cool kids call when they text an NBD situation. She was in a VBD situation. All right, I can translate, no big deal. No, this was a very big deal. Her kids' lives were on the line for her. Humanly speaking, no options, no hope. And again, uh, this isn't gonna be our thing. But have you ever lived under a cloud of anxiety and depression where it's been so thick and so constant and been following you around for so long that you've actually felt you now have no options and therefore no help? You can't see a way out of it. Maybe you're struggling with your marriage. You've tried to be a better spouse and maybe you've done the counselling thing and it just doesn't seem to be moving the needle and it's like you're, you're kind of losing hope. Well, Elisha said, I wonder how I can be of help. <laughs> Notice he didn't say, sweetheart, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> and, and then moved on. Clicked like on her desperate desperate filled social media post. It's called slacktivism. Well, I liked it on social media. I mean, that probably helped her. He opened up his life in that moment and asked, he's asking God the question. I wonder how I can be of help. I wonder how I can be used by God in this situation. And by the way, he didn't say, tell me what you need because he already knew that. He asked this bonkers question. Tell me what do you have in your house? She's just told him, basically, you know, can't pay the debts, kids are about to be repossessed. And she replies, nothing. Have you ever noticed when you're feeling desperate, you can easily start to lose perspective? You start to focus on what you don't have rather than what you do have. You, 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 you're, your focus on what you need completely obscures anything that you may have access to that could help you move things forward. But here's the big idea we're about to learn. Stop obsessing over what you don't have and start working with what you've got. So I'm, I'm a visual person. Many of you are too. I'm reading this slice of history and Elisha says, you know, tell me what you have. And she says, nah, nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm picturing what was going on here. And I'm wondering if he fires back the look that you give to your kids when they come home from school and you ask them, so did your teacher give you any homework to do tonight? And Junior says, no, nothing. And you're like, Or the, or the look when you're, 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 you're kind of starting to run late for the wedding and, and your wife runs out of the closet area and says to you, I've got nothing to wear. And you give her the look because you're thinking to yourself, you could, feed, you could clothe a village with your wardrobe. Or this one, when your kids go into the kitchen and they say, I'm hungry. 
and they open the pantry that is so full that if something fell out, they would be buried alive. And they say to you, there's nothing to eat. And you, so I'm picturing Elisha giving that one to the widow. Not very sensitive, I understand. Said nothing. We said, oh, okay, all right, all right, you got me. I do have a little oil, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. Well, great news for her because we serve a God who specializes in doing a lot with a little. Well, maybe if I had more, I can do well more. Maybe, but start with what you've got and see what. God does. Everyone sitting down? Everyone taking their meds this morning? I'm gonna take you to a dark place. March 2020, the world started to shut down like a series of dominoes and eventually the lockdown thing happened here in P-Town and the great nation of Westralia. Churches, among many other institutions and businesses and so on, were now low now no longer for the foreseeable future, we don't even know how long, allowed to meet in person. Which if that had happened like 20 years ago, that's, li that's literally it. That's like, maybe I'll see you again, maybe I won't. We don't know. And there was no other options available. I got together right around that time with a, a bunch of my mates who lead churches here in Perth. <laughs> you weren't allowed to have, we got together for lunch you weren't allowed to actually sit inside the restaurant. So we got takeout from the newly concocted takeout window and we walked around the corner and we had a picnic in the park. Okay, sounds lovely, but it's kind of like we felt a little bit upset because we were forced to do it. So we started comparing notes. You know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What's your approach? How are you responding to this? This is like week one, just about to start of lockdown 1.0. One of my mates says, well, I've, I'm, I'm just laying, I've laid, we've got staff, I've laid them all off. Okay, all right. He says, yep, because you know. Okay. Next one didn't quite take the nuclear option, but said, you know, we're just like slashing, slashing the budget, like slashing, like pfft, Agent Orange here, strafe burning. And I was like, what? All right. <clears throat> Full disclosure, I then went into that guy mode. I don't go there very often because I don't walk around trying to have to prove something, but I went into that guy mode because it seemed to me there's a lot at stake here. And I said, ah, fellas, have you thought that maybe God could turn this crisis into an opportunity? He's like, and they're like, we weren't wearing masks at that point, so they gave me the full blank look. Because here's what, we did, and this doesn't make us better than anyone else. And by the way, a lot of churches did exactly what we did. And that's to say that we started asking ourselves the question here, March 2020, not what we can't do, not what we don't have, not what's been taken from us. What do we have? And by the way, here's what we have. I'm gonna tell you what we had, and it's not very impressive. We had access to one camera, Thank you, Jared. We all had smartphones, which apparently have cameras built in as well. Uh, our music team kind of quickly figured out that how, how they could record music in their living room or other self-confined environments and kind of 
stitch them all together. Um, our media team, two of our media team had experience in editing and three of our other media team members were willing to take a crash course. Like, and within three days, we launched our very first online experience from a literally a standing start and we published that 10 a.m. the very first Sunday that we weren't allowed to meet here. That was 167 weeks ago. 167 weekly online experiences ago. And God has used that online experience. He didn't just use that while we were not allowed to come together in person. He's continued to use that and we're continued, continuing to see that grow and that reach grow and us reaching people that we haven't met, probably never will, but reaching people and building people. And it, and it all began because we asked ourselves the question, what do we have and what can we do with what we have. Well, we do have a little oil. It doesn't seem like much, but okay, let's, let's start with that because we, we follow a God who specializes in doing a lot with a little. Now that woman, by the way, oh, here's what you do, says Elijah. Go up and down the street and borrow jugs and bowls from, from all your neighbors and not just a few, all you can get. And then come home and lock the door behind you and you and your sons pour oil into each container. And when each is full, set it aside. Now we can read over this and some of you church veterans, you know how this story ends, I get it. But understand that in this moment, this was a hinge moment for this widow. She had the choice to either pour out the oil in faith or store up the oil in fear. But God can only multiply what we pour out. So she did what Elisha said. She locked the door behind her and her sons and as they brought the containers to her, she filled them. When all the jugs and bowls are full, she said to one of her sons, another jug please. And he said, that's it, no more jugs. And then the oil stopped. She went and told the story to the man of God and he said, go and sell the oil and make good on your debts. Live both you and your sons on what's left. These seem like maybe on the surface two disconnected miracles where first of all, we see God saying, grab some shovels and go and dig ditches. And then spoiler, they actually did wake up and the valley was full of water. Uh, this is not shovels, this is a little oil. But again, it has to be put to work. It doesn't make sense, just like the shovels in the desert when you already have, you know, dying of thirst. It doesn't make sense. But it's another promise of provision from Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. But get this. Oh my gosh, this is good. Can I, I'll just read it for you. Go sell the oil and make good on your death. She owed so much that legally the guy was gonna come and take her two sons as slaves. I don't know what the dollar amount of that is, but it's not five bucks, I'm sure. So it's pretty good, right? Yeah, but you didn't read to the end of the sentence. Live both you 
and your son live from this day forward, both you and your sons on what's left. When the, guy, when, the, when the army soldiers dug ditches with shovels, God didn't just fill the ditches, he filled the valley. He declares that he is the God who is more than enough. Not just enough, not nearly enough, not almost enough, not better than what I had. I just had a little oil, now I've got a little bit more oil. Go sell or make good on your debts and live both you and your sons on what's left. The God who is more than enough provided more than enough. He didn't just get her back from being against the wall. He actually set her up for her future and for her son's future. We can pray big prayers to a big God, but we need to often start with what we have, even if it's small, and believe that God specializes in multiplying what we pour out in faith and not store up in fear. We really hope you got a lot out of this message. If you live in the Perth area, we'd love for you to join one of our live experiences. For times and directions, as well as information, head to our website, elevatechurch.me. For those of you beyond the Perth area, we'd love for you to connect with our online experience, which premieres every Sunday via YouTube and Facebook Live and on demand immediately after. And to partner with us to reach more people by giving financially, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and also download our Elevate Church AU app.